Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's the reason there ain't no dying in that heavenly land. Uh, that does bring joy. It does. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming back. Uh, this is the second half of a really long sermon. Uh, so long I had to break it into two parts. And uh, this is part two. If you missed part one, you can get it on our website. But we're thinking about what Jesus means when he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. And I've been drawing on Pete Scazzaro, Scazzaro, two Z's, one R. He's the founding pastor of a church called New Life Fellowship in Queens, New York. And also he and his wife, Jerry, are the founders of an organization called Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. And Pete Scazzaro says that verse, uh, blessed are the peacemakers, Matthew 5, verse 9, that's the most misinterpreted verse or one of the most misinterpreted verses in the whole Bible. So much of our pain and conflict uh, personally and globally comes from unresolved conflict, uh, unresolved conflict. And there's a problem when we confuse true peace with false peace. We become false peacemakers when we avoid conflict. We sweep it under the carpet or just hope it will go away. But it doesn't. See, that's the thing. Remember, as I said last week, Pete says true peace will never come from pretending what is wrong is right. And we can't build the kingdom of God on falsehoods and lies. So Jesus is a true peacemaker. Uh, he doesn't do that. He's calling us to be true peacemakers. This means that Jesus will disrupt false peace wherever he finds it. And we saw in Matthew 10 that he brings a sword. He says he brings a sword, which means he's a disruptor. He disrupts false peace because he comes to restore relationship and give us peace with God, peace with ourselves, peace with others, and peace with creation. So last week we focused kind of on the what of peacemaking. This week I promised we'd, we'd focus on the how of peacemaking. How can you and I become true peacemakers? Well, we're going to look at the example of Jesus, and I'm going to share with you a few biblical skills that you and I can use to become true peacemakers. And we need to practice true peacemaking with these skills. So let's start by looking at a moment of disruption in Jesus' own ministry. Uh, you may remember in the temple. He uh, overturns the tables. So when Jesus shows up in the temple, he shows up as a true peacemaker. Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 48. All the four Gospels tell this story. It's very important to Jesus' ministry. Uh, and you'll find this on the bottom of page uh, 854 in the Pew Bible, if you're looking for it there. If you're able, would you stand with me? Let's read God's word aloud together as an act of worship. Luke 19. Verse 41 through 48, when we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading God's holy word. As he came near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, if even you had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave within you one stone upon another 
because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. Then he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling things there. And he said, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people kept looking for a way to kill him, but they did not find anything they could do. For all the people were spellbound by what they heard. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what we just read never will. Please be seated. So is this our model? <laughs> Luke says Jesus is driving people out of the temple. <laughs> I've done that before. Jesus is turning over tables, Matthew tells us. He's throwing chairs, Mark tells us. He's waving a whip around, John tells us. Oh my. Now some of you are saying, all right, let's go kick some bad guy booty, right? Nothing would make you happier than to know you've got biblical justification for your outbursts of anger and these ugly moments of rage. But I want to urge you, be careful. You could do a lot of damage. The landscape is littered with casualties of those who take Jesus's, try to take Jesus' metaphorical sword and make war in the name of peace. Be careful. Others of us are, are reading this and we're going, oh my, <laughs> maybe Jesus can do this, but I know I'm not Jesus. And nothing terrifies you more than the thought of getting wounded in a conflict or even worse, maybe wounding others. So to you I say, be bold. Be bold. Because the landscape is also littered with relationships that could have been healed if only someone had had the courage to address the pain. Be bold. So now the question today is how can we do both? How can we be careful and be bold? How do we become peacemakers in the way of Jesus and not do damage to one another's lives or our relationships? Well, we get some clues here from the text in the example of Jesus. There are two things in particular that I notice in this passage, something Jesus does and something he says. Luke tells us Jesus wept, that's what he does, verse 41. And then Jesus talks about things that make for peace. That's what he says. So let's look at those two things. There's tears and there's, Jesus says, things that make for peace. First, let's think about the tears. Jesus demonstrates that true peacemaking flows from a heart of love. This is so important. True peacemaking flows from a heart of love. It has to. I mean, Jesus in this moment has every right to stand in judgment over Israel, right? What they're doing in the temple is wrong. In fact, what the whole city is doing is wrong. They're, they're on the pathway to destruction. And you don't know what anybody seems to be on the pathway to destruction. Maybe you feel you, you, you yourself are on the pathway to destruction. Well, Jerusalem is. They're turning from God. They're turning to the sword. And they're going to soon be crushed by the Romans in AD 70. Destruction, literal. But you do not see Jesus standing in judgment over Jerusalem in this moment. What you see is Jesus is not looking down his nose. He's not wagging his finger. He's not telling them what to do or not do. What you see is tears. He's weeping. He's weeping over Jerusalem. Now this word that Luke uses, it's not a 
referring to just a couple of tears. He's talking about, this is a strong word, deep grief, full sobbing, wailing, wailing. Like, it's the word we see, Rachel wailing for her children, or Peter sobbing after his denials, or Mary crying at the tomb. Listen to what he says in verse 41. As he came near and saw the city, Jesus wept over. He's sobbing. He's wailing. His heart is broken with grief. It's full of love for this city. Even the city that less than a week from now is going to take his life. This city. He weeps for them. He truly loves them. So I think there's a lesson here that true peacemaking flows from a heart of love. Think about Children's Hospital for a second. I mean, mom, dad, why would you ever take a child to Children's Hospital? Well, yeah, it's a wonderful place. It's an amazing place, actually. But think about what they do there. They put chemicals inside of children, toxic chemicals. I mean, they cut them open with knives. They stick pokey you know, needles inside of them. And mom and dad, you'll, you'll hold them until the deed is done. Why? Love. Love. This is what love does. What true peacemaking is about is that kind of love. When we're trying to be peacemakers, we're trying to do what Jesus has commanded us to do, which is to love God and love our neighbors. If we love them well, we just can't sit by when we see them hurting or making bad choices or shutting down or growing distant, heading towards some form of destruction. We won't. We'll say, wait, let's figure this out. Let's figure out how to love God together. Let's figure out how to love each other the way God loves us. That's what we do. And it's not a sentimental kind of love. This is a disruptive love. Listen to the way St. Paul describes it. In 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude, does not insist on its own way, it's not irritable or resentful, does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is a different kind of love. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. says this is the, this is the love that comes not because someone is likable, but because God loves them, Dr. King. Dallas Willard says, this is, not the this is the love that wills the good of another. It's not selfish. It's not about me. It's about what's best for you. So this won't be easy. This will lead us to compassion, which, as you know, means hurting because others hurt. Compassion. Or empathy, which is feeling what others feel. Oh, this is going to be hard. We have to approach conflict with the interests of the other person above our own interests. And so it's going to cost something. It's going to cost us something. Like it does Jesus towards the end of the week in Jerusalem. But if we bring love, I mean if we were to weep as Jesus weeps over that other person, well God can work through even the most clumsy attempts at peace. I mean if you don't bring that kind of love, no technique or skill can help. But if you bring love, well, our ham-fisted attempts can prove beautifully redemptive. Do you not realize, Romans 2, 4 says, it's that, it, that it's God's kindness that's meant to lead you to repentance. See, it's love that transforms the relationship. 
And by the way, it's love that keeps you in the relationship because sometimes it's hard to stay in there. But remember, you can't change a relationship that you're not in. So we need love. True peacemaking flows from a heart of love. This is what we learn from the tears. This is what we learn from what Jesus does. And then he starts talking, and then he says some things, right? He says, he, he uses an cryptic phrase, things that make for peace. And so there's a second lesson here. And that is that true peacemaking unfolds on a path of wisdom. Things that make for peace. Wisdom. Now, what do we mean by wisdom? Wisdom is one of the Bible's great words for the ability to make good decisions. The ability to navigate life well. That's wisdom. Life with God, life with yourself, life with others, life with creation. Wisdom. And that wisdom is a skill. It's a skill. It's something that can be learned. See, the irony here is that Jerusalem is supposed to be God's city of peace. Remember the great word for peace that I shared with you last week. You want to say it again? Shalom, right? And Jerusalem is Jeru Shalom. Can you hear it in the name Jerusalem? It's in the name, and that's the irony. They're supposed to be God's city of peace, but they apparently, Jesus is implying, have lost the skill or the wisdom that leads to peace. He says in verse 42, if you, even you, Jerusalem, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace. Another translation says, how I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace, the way of wisdom. So what are these things that make for peace? What is he referring to? The way to peace. Well, I like to share with you five biblical skills. And these are five skills I'm learning, okay? I hope you don't I'm not the expert here. I'm the student here. I want to learn these with you. And they're not things you just do and then you're done. These are things that you practice and they become part of who you are. It's part of becoming a peacemaker in the way of Jesus. So let me give them to you all at once and then I'll walk through them. I'd like to put them on the screen. You might get your phone out, take a picture of this. Uh, If you can write fast, you can get them. But I'll go back through so you'll have another chance uh, to write those down. These are five biblical skills that when we practice them, help us become peacemakers in the way of Jesus. So the first one is this, search me. These are sentence starters. Search me. Search me. This is the wisdom of starting with yourself in conflict. Notice it's very important to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, verse 3, Jesus says, why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye but do not notice the log in your own eye? Let's work on the log. Not the speck. That's what Jesus is saying there, right? Start with yourself. So before you and I ever engage in conflict, we want to engage in prayer. Before we speak to the other, we want to speak to the Lord. And so we pray the prayer in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. We're trying to find out even what's in my head. I don't know. Lord, help me with that. Test me and know my thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. This is David, right? Pete Scazzaro tells a story about one of his younger staff named Phil, who had a very angry Easter one Easter Sunday. Because one of his colleagues, one of Phil's colleagues uh, named Myrna, had made a mistake. They were supposed to do baptisms, and she hadn't done planning for one of the baptism candidates. And later she would apologize to Phil, and Phil said, Ah, it's okay, it's no big deal. But it wasn't no big deal. It actually was a big deal because 
Phil found out about it on Saturday, which Phil is trying to keep as a Sabbath. It was also the one-year anniversary of his wedding. And what he thought would take five minutes if he did it himself, instead of asking Myrna to help, uh, took five hours. Just killed the whole day. And so he was stewing. He was really angry. Well, Pete and Jerry Scazzaro found out about this, and they said, hey, Phil, let's, can we work with you on this? Let's, let's start with yourself first and pray a prayer like, search me. And as Phil did this, and he actually sort of journaled out the prayer and his, and his discoveries as he came to the Lord this way, what he discovered were there were cultural issues. comes from a, a, an Indian family, and he had sort of learned implicitly in his family of origin that it's not okay to raise questions with an older person or give them an assignment. <clears throat> so he struggled to be honest. The other thing was one of his values was honesty and truthfulness. And he, had, he realized, I have lied to Myrna when I said it's, not okay. it's okay, don't worry about it. He'd lied to her. So th this had helped him. It gave him the insight that he needed then to go back to Myrna constructively and apologize. I'm sorry that I, I told you a lie, Myrna. And he was able to share some of his values with her. They came closer together. She gave him a big hug and said, thank you. It's a small thing, but it's an important. They're, they reconcile. Search me. So when we pray that prayer, God helps us. He's committed to helping us. And the prayer, as he answers it, helps us boil down some of the white-hot emotion to the substance that's really at issue. What's the value here for you? What's really, it's, why is this important to you? What's the value? Maybe it's honesty, or maybe it's equity, or maybe it's efficiency, or maybe it's intimacy, whatever it is, but it's helpful to discover it. And then what's your motive here? Are you operating out of love? Or are you recognizing in yourself bitterness, or defensiveness, or pride maybe? Are you thinking of others, or are you thinking of yourself? So this is where to begin. Lord, search me. The second skill is I'm puzzled. This is the wisdom of speaking for yourself. This is helpful. Leviticus 19, I've, I discovered this in a verse. It says, don't nurse hatred in your heart. Oh my gosh, this is an Old Testament. Don't nurse hatred in your heart. The wisdom of that. And don't bear a grudge, it says. So imagine someone steals your milk out of the fridge. You might be tempted not to say anything and just sort of stew over it for a week, right? Nurse a wound. No, find the person if you can, and say, I'm puzzled, okay? I'm puzzled, just like, just like that. <clears throat> Not, why'd you take my milk without asking? <laughs> or in another situation, Not, why are you ignoring my emails? But how about this? You know, I'm puzzled that my milk is gone. <laughs> or I'm puzzled by unanswered emails, okay? You see what's happening there? By the way, years ago, someone taught me to avoid the word why in conflict. I tended to use it a lot. Because when I say why to you in a situation like that, it tends to make you and others defensive. What? Like you have to justify yourself. It puts the focus on you. But when I say I'm puzzled, huh, I'm putting the focus on myself. I'm not asking for you to defend yourself. I'm actually sharing with you how I'm feeling, and I'm inviting you to help me understand. You might even add, can you help me out? As in, I'm puzzled, can you help me out? Okay, You're gonna chisel these on your flesh and so you'll have them handy whenever you're in a situation like this. So I'm puzzled. Okay, uh, I'm gonna get this from the staff a lot this week, I know. Okay, number three, 
I hope I do. I notice and I prefer. This is the third skill. This is one of my favorites. I notice and I prefer. This is the wisdom of bringing a solution. Bringing a solution, not just a problem. This is a healthy way of making a, a kind of a complaint. And you're bringing the complaint, but you're bringing a, a solution along with it. Proverbs 15, 23 says, to make an apt answer is a joy to anyone. And a word in season, how good it is. So this is a little sentence starter to give that kind of a word. Now, here's an example. Maybe uh, your in-laws have a, a knack for calling you just before you sit down at the table. They consistently call at mealtime. Or someone's always late for your meeting at work, or maybe your, your small group here at the church. What do you do? Well, you can say this. You can use I notice and I prefer. You can say, I notice we're sitting down for a meal just as you call. And I prefer you call earlier or later. That's not bad. Or I notice we've often already begun when you arrive. And I prefer you come on time so we can all start together. I notice and I prefer. When you say I notice, you're again not ascribing motive or, or blame. or It's just an observation. You know, this is what I notice. Uh, when you say, I prefer, you're sharing a preference, and you're actually teeing up a kind of a solution that, that may be or maybe not be helpful to the both of you. Somebody asked me last week about that brunch illustration that I, I use, you know, where you're down on the Ave, and 12 of you are, uh, decide to, someone decides to split the bill 12 ways. <clears throat> First of all, someone told me $25 would be a bargain down on the Ave. You'd be lucky if you got that. But then one of you said, Pastor George, so what's the right answer? <laughs> you know, what should you do? And I hadn't really thought about that. And I think, oh gosh, you know, it's, I don't know, it's just a hard situation. I don't know what the answer is. But I thought, as I, this week, I, you could use, I notice, and I prefer. So I, I wrote this out. See if this works for you. Yeah, so you just say, <clears throat> after they say, let's split the bill, you say, you know, I noticed that we ordered a lot of food together. And I prefer to pay my own bill separately this week because I'm working on a budget. That might work, Right? That might work. That might save you 40 or so bucks. And uh, more importantly, uh, you'll be closer with the, the, this group of friends. I notice and I prefer. Okay, number four. May I check my assumptions? May I check my assumptions? This is the wisdom of truthfulness. Pete Gazzaro calls it stop mind reading. And, you know, mind reading... The Bible seriously discourages mind reading as it forbids sorcery and divination of all kinds. But we do it. <laughs> we think we, I think I know what's in your head. I do. Before you even say something, and you do something, I think I know exactly why you did that thing. <laughs> the problem is, I oftentimes assume the worst because I'm insecure. So you see pictures on Instagram. All your friends are out on a Thursday night. You never heard anything about this, but it looks like they're having a wonderful time. And you say to yourself, why wasn't I invited? I bet it was Natalie. I bet she invited everyone except for me. She must be angry at me. That's mind reading. Don't do that, Natalie. Okay. Uh, or after a big project, the manager, she's giving shout-outs to everybody who contributed on the team, but she doesn't say a word about you. And you think, oh, I bet she's got it in for me. She's never really liked me. <laughs> Well, how do you know that? Do you know that? Has she told you that? 
Or could there be other ways of interpreting what happened? So you're going to circle back around, and you're going to check your assumptions. May I check my assumptions? So it could look like this. With Natalie, you say, hey, uh, I saw a bunch of you out the other night. Can I check my assumptions? And then Natalie says, sure. You say, well, I was thinking maybe you, you were the one who organized the group, and, and, and maybe you're angry with me. Is that right? And, and then Natalie gets a chance to tell you. Or you find your manager later after the meeting, privately, and you say, hey, can I check my assumptions with you? She says, sure. And you say, well, I, well, I heard you thanking people at the meeting, and I, I thought you were pleased with my work. Am I missing something here? See, Can I check my assumptions? So powerful. This gives you a chance to find out the truth, and it gives them a chance to tell you what they're thinking, what actually they're thinking. What's in their own mind. So you don't have to read it for yourself. I mean, if you, if you don't do this, <clears throat> you are one step away from breaking the ninth commandment. Now, everybody knows what the ninth commandment is because we've got the ten memorized. The ninth commandment says you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. <laughs> the moment you decide that you know what's in their mind and it's not what's in their mind, and particularly when it's an unkind thing, you have just broken the ninth commandment. Commandment. You've, bro- you've borne false witness against your neighbor. And Jesus says, don't do that. It's not going to help. Don't do that. So the way you avoid that, <clears throat> you say, may I check your assumptions? All right, last one, number five. You've heard me share this one before. Tell me more. This is the wisdom of listening. Tell me more. Because there's always another side to the story. I love this. Proverbs 18, 17 Growing up in a lawyer's family, this is, resonates with me. In a lawsuit, the first to speak seems right until someone comes forward and cross-examines. Isn't that true? <laughs> you've got to give the other, I know we're not in a lawsuit, but you've got to give that other person a chance to tell their story, to really understand them. And so you have to use these words. Tell me more. After a message a couple weeks ago, someone caught me at the door and they said, You know, I've heard this, before you criticize someone, walk a mile in their shoes. That way, you'll be a mile away from them and you'll have their shoes. (laughs) No, no, I'm sorry. That's not the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. No, he encourages us to love by listening. What a gift it is to listen to someone. Would you? And so when you say, tell me more, it's just so life-giving to hear those words. These are the three most powerful words in a relationship. Tell me more. I want to understand. I want to know what it's like to be you in this moment. And then you listen again. They're going to tell, they're going to tell something. And then, then say it again after they pause and catch their breath. Instead of jumping in, you know, with your defense and your argument and what it looks like to you, just say, tell me more. And they're going to reload and there's going to be more. I think the good stuff doesn't really come until you've said it several times. So people don't really know what they think. They're, they're verbally processing and you're creating space for a better outcome. And certainly for understanding, compassion, and empathy. I have to remind myself that Jesus is the only one with truth with a capital T. He's the only one that sees the truth in the relationship. He sees both sides. You and I, we, get, we have our truth, but it's a lowercase t truth. When you listen, what you're doing is you're putting your lowercase truth under somebody else's lowercase truth just for a moment. 
You don't have to answer their questions. You don't have to acknowledge their assumptions. You don't have to endorse their conclusions. You're just sitting under their truth and saying, tell me more. And then take turns with that. You do that well, they're going to say, hey, would you, would you tell me your situation as well? Or if they don't, you could suggest, may I tell you a little bit how this looks to me? That's okay. Now, David Benner has three helpful questions for listeners. I want to put these on the screen because I really like these. Three questions, David Benner, am I fully present or distracted when I'm listening to you? Am I loving or judging when I listen to you? Am I open or closed to being changed when I listen to you? Think about those. That's worth putting on your fridge. By the way, if you've done your search me and you discover what your values are, it's going to help you know where you're open and where you're closed. Because you've gotten down with the real value that matters to you. And as you're listening and saying, tell me more, you're going to listen, what is their value? Because you might not agree with what they think or what they've done, but you could end up agreeing with their underlying value. And that helps. Tell me more. Tell me more. Well, these are what Jesus might call things that make for peace. Five skills for peacemaking. And actually, they're all expressions of love. They come from the heart. As I say, true peacemaking flows from a heart of love, and true peacemaking unfolds on a path of wisdom. Let me finally say, as important as all these are, what matters most is that God has come in a person, and this is what brings us here today. God has come in a person, and we get this in the text. This is what Jesus means when he says in verse 44, uh, it speaks of a visitation from God. He's saying, do you not know that peace has come from heaven? In a person, do you not know that in a person, heavenly shalom has come to the city of shalom, to Jerusalem? I am the one. He's speaking of himself. He says, enemies will overtake you because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. He's speaking of himself. Do you recognize me? I'm right here. Do you see me? I mean, Jesus looks like any other pilgrim in Jerusalem at that time as a city swells four times its population. Jesus is just one in the crowd, but he's God. Visiting us as a man. He's this mediator between God and us. As Ephesians chapter, four, chapter 2, verse 14 says, he is our peace. That's such good news. Last week I asked you to imagine Jesus standing in your conflict. Just picture that other person and put Jesus in between you and that other person. See him there. Between you and your teammate or your sibling or your neighbor. Because he actually is there. Just as he was in Jerusalem, though they couldn't really see it. He's there. Do you recognize me, he says to you. The mediator from heaven. Likewise, imagine Jesus standing between you and God. So what God sees in you is not your failure, not your sin, not your shame, but the faithfulness of Jesus holding you before the Father in love and grace, bearing to you the free gift of salvation. Do you recognize me, Jesus says to you? Do you recognize me? The mediator from heaven. See, this matters so much because you and I tend to get peacemaking wrong. We do. We don't always have a heart of love. We don't always follow the path of wisdom. And we do cause damage. 
but we can trust Jesus with all of our relationships, even the ones we've screwed up, even the one with God. In fact, this is the one that we need to address first, our relationship with God and Jesus Christ. So we look to the cross, it's in the glass above me. What do you see there? Do you see God giving his life for you as the great and final peace offering? This is why the temple matters so much to Jesus, by the way. He's the peace offering. Do you see him wounded for your transgressions? Scriptures say, by his bruises, we're healed. Do you hear him crying out for you? Not in judgment or condemnation, but in grace. Father, forgive him. Father, forgive her. For they know not what they do. This is the visitation. He's here. He comes not for the guy who thinks he gets it all right. That one in the story, previous chapter, praying in the temple. God, thank you that I'm not like other people. No, he's coming for folks who know they get it wrong. Praying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He's coming for you. He's coming for me. Because he is our peace. This, right now, is the time of our visitation. He's here. The only question is, will we recognize him? Would you pray with me? Let's take a moment and pray for those who are right in the thick of conflict. Maybe it's someone on your right or on your left. Would you pray for peace? Pray for them. Lord, we, we lift them up. Those who are engaged right now, we trust that there are some who are right in the middle of it. And we pray for peace for them. Let's, t- let's take a moment and pray for those who haven't been able to recognize God and Jesus at all. You're still on the, the journey and we want to pray for you. Lord, we, we pray for these friends, these dear friends that You've come for them, you've died for them, you've risen for them. You're exalted to the right hand of the Father for them. They haven't been able to recognize you yet. Would you break open their hearts, give them the eyes of faith that they might see Jesus, receive salvation. I mean, if that's you, just tell him today, yes, Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Thank you for the gift of eternal life. Not on the basis of my works, but on the basis of yours. Free gift. You can pray that prayer today and know you have everlasting life. If we can help you with that decision, we invite you to come to upc.org slash Jesus or come down front with our prayer team after the worship service is over. Lord Jesus, give us life in you. You are our peace. Bring shalom, wholeness, welfare. Renew us individually and corporately. We know you love this creation. And we're so eager for your kingdom to come and things to work on earth as they do in heaven. So we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.